Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. So we're continuing now week two of our Lenten series and uh, thinking about what it means and looks like for us to uh, have a season of healing. And, uh, and this Lenten season uh, carries with it that idea of the lengthening days, uh, the time for the sun to do its work, to allow spring to be a reality. And, and so it's a part of the sort of underpinnings of the whole idea of Lent that you and I are lengthening. We're, we're stretching out. We're allowing the sun to nourish us and renew us and refresh us and prepare us for new life. And we've kind of been in the winter for a while, and it's time for some springtime. And so we're leaning into those images and those ideas and what that renewal might look like. We're also reflecting on the unity of the body of Christ, that this tradition dates back to when we were sort of all one big church family uh, way back in the fourth century, and, and how all of the divisions that have come since then have still leaned back into the tradition of Lent. And so we're celebrating that together and celebrating that what binds us together is far greater than what divides us. And man, we need to think about that today and what that looks like and what that means, and how it affects each one of us. So we're thinking today about what it means to invite God to have a healing of our minds. And I don't know about you, but I feel more than ever the need for that reality. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. It might be the poster child for all of those ideas about the healing mind. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will. It is good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's fascinating to me that Paul, as he hints at what it means to have a a transformed mind, and, and he sort of kind of gets into that whole flow of thought in chapter 12 there, that the language he's using is the exact same language that Peter is using in, in 1 Peter in the letter. And it causes me to think that we see this surface again and again in other places in the New Testament. So, so this idea of a renewed mind, a, a mind that is healed, is a conversation that the early church is having. Clearly they're talking about it. In fact, Peter is using the very same language, the very same Greek words in his writing as Paul is using in Romans 12. And so there's this conversation that's going on. So we're going to do a little thing now, and uh, I, I want you to participate. So it's a little bit of a test. Uh, I talked to you uh, uh, some time ago, probably a couple years ago, uh, about the phenomenon of col- colonialization and what that looked like around the world. So I'm going to ask you a question, and you can post your answer. Uh, there's no bonus points. There's no money involved. Uh, there are no prizes or anything like that. So... But here it is. What, what is the largest and greatest empire ever to rule the world? The largest and greatest empire ever to rule the world. So I'll give you a minute to do that. Think about it. Post what your guesses are. We'll see how that goes. Well, it's the British Empire. 
And the British Empire, at one time, in the early 20th century, if you can get your brain around this, the British Empire, in the early 20th century, included about 13 million people. Uh, It was about 20% of the world's population in 1922. 20% of the world's entire population was a part of the British Empire. 22% 22% of the world's landmass in 1922 was a part of the British Empire. So when you talk about, you know, the British Empire was the empire upon which the sun never set, that was because somewhere it was always daylight in the British Empire. And so colonialization shaped the world in this powerful way. We here in Southern California, we, we have been shaped by uh, Spanish colonization. Uh, all of South and Central America bears the marks of uh, of Spanish colonialization, and, and we still feel that and recognize what it is around us as we visit the missions around our area. It's all a part of that history. And maybe you think that colonialization was a long time ago, and, and you know, it had, well, the British Empire began to falter in World War I, and it finally really came to an end after World War II. 1947 really marks the end of the official British Empire. Uh, when in India was uh, given away, as it's got back its independence. But the final colony was settled in 1999. It was the very end of the 20th century when the final, the final colony of colonization, of that era of colonization, was given up. And it was the island of Macaw on the southern tip of China. It was a Portuguese colony, and it was surrendered back uh, to China. And so this is a, not an ancient history. This is something that marks our lives. Tom Skinner used to tell the story about what the British Empire did. And, and here's the thing that, that went with colonialization. These people believed that their way of doing empire was the very best way of doing empire. And so they carried with them a vision and values and culture that they believed to be the very best thing there was, the very best way to live. And so uh, Tom Skinner talks about this reality and how it affected places in the British Empire. And he said, you know, people in, the, in, a, in a colony of Great Britain, they understood things about Great Britain, having never been there, having never been to England, having never set foot uh, on, uh, you know, the British Isles proper. They understood that every day at 10 and 2, they had tea. They understood that's what's going on there. They understood that they played a game called cricket, and they understood the rules and how it worked and, and, and what a strange game, and they figured it out, and they understood over in Great Britain, that's what they do. And they, they understood the conduct and the procedures and, and the way law was practiced, and, and they understood the culture, and they understood stoicism, and they understood all the finer points. And it's astonishing to me when we visit Southern Africa uh, and our friends in Eswatini, it's so apparent, the British influence, uh, from the time that you break for tea every morning and afternoon to, to the reality of how a business meeting is conducted, to, to things that are just woven into the culture. And so when you stop and you think about this, you've you got to know this, that the world didn't change the empires, the empires changed the world. So the New Testament writers are so familiar with this concept of empire. They're, they're so familiar with what it means for the world to be impacted. They knew the history of Israel. The, the New Testament writers understood what had happened when the 
Assyrians came and they understood what happened when the Babylonians came and they understood what happened when the Egyptians came and they understood what happened when, when the Persians came and they understood what happened now under Roman rule. They had seen what had happened in the empire and they had seen how Rome had vision and values and a culture of its own and that, that vision and value and culture was pushed into the lives of others. In fact, uniquely, the people of Israel resisted conforming to that empire and paid a very awful price for that nonconformity because the empire was going to push forward with its values and with its virtues and with its vision and with its culture no matter what, and they had seen it happen. They had lived it historically, and they were living it in real time. And at some point, it occurs to the New Testament writers that the kingdom of God is exactly that. It is an empire from another place with its own vision and its own values and its own culture, and it is designed not to allow the world to change it, but to change the world. And so as Jesus came and He began to speak and teach about the kingdom of God, the New Testament writers began to think about colonialization. They began to think about what it means to be the empire of God present on earth, to live out its values. And they began to advocate. They imagined that you and I and all other believers were driven by something within us, not something outside of us. That it wasn't the world that was influencing us. It wasn't the outward realities that were defining our motivation or our thoughts or our choices or the quality of our inner world. That in fact, kingdom people were motivated by an inner sense of vision and of values and of practices. And those are the things that moved us forward with courage. We were encouraged by that. And even when circumstances were stacked against these kingdom people, and even when the promises that were made to them defied human logic and current circumstances, even when there was so much that was unknown, these kingdom people continued to trust anyway. They continued to follow anyway. They continued to stay calm anyway. They continued to keep their heads up anyway. They continued to keep their righteous right minds anyway. And it just seems to me that you and I could stop today and, and just think about what it means for you and I to live a whole different set of culture, values, vision, to be motivated and impacted from something that dwells deep in us instead of what's going on in the world around us. The New Testament writers wrote and challenged kingdom people to take the kingdom vision and values and in the most hard-headed, stubborn, putting your nose to the grindstone, shutting out the noise, getting on with your business, closing out the distractions, put these kingdom values into practice. So, it's very frequent that the New Testament writers bring up that the whole nation of Israel was built on this pattern of trusting when it didn't seem like you could trust, of, uh, 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 of defying whatever circumstances were going on around them, whatever trend was happening to them, they, they could continue to trust and believe. But you got to know this, there is risk in living like that. There is risk in being a person of faith. 
To be a person that lives this kingdom value, it has to get put into practice in real life. And that practice is the value and vision and culture of another kingdom, distinctly different from the one in which we live and operate and, and, and try to function. And when you start to live values and vision and culture that's from a different place, there is great potential for humiliation. There's potential for embarrassment. There's, there's great potential for honestly failure. But we trust anyway. The messengers of the New Testament write over and over and over and over in the face of all of that reality. Believe anyway. Trust anyway. Put your vision and your values into practice anyway. In fact, they say, it's the only life that is worth living. Don't be small. Don't be timid. Don't get lost. Don't let the world define your vision. Don't let the world define your values. Don't let the world define your practices. Instead, live by faith. By faith. That's risky business. And if you're anything like me, we're a little averse to such things. We don't really like to stand out in places of uncertainty. We like to fit in and go with the flow. Peter is writing to a group of people who are facing really fearful days of uncertainty. He, there's, there's this new persecution that's coming. It's not quite there yet, but it's coming. And these are people that have already been a part of the dispersion, so their history is they've been pushed out of places because of faith, and they're living in now Asia Minor, and he's writing to encourage them. And, and we mentioned it last week. This whole letter could be summed up in this. Conduct becoming kingdom people in difficult times. This is what he's writing about. It's what the whole letter is about. And in it, he has this idea, and the idea is that this colony of the kingdom of God, present and alive on earth, living out its vision, values, and culture within this greater context of what's going on, motivated from within and not from without, is a sanctuary. It's a place of peace. It's a place where people gather together, and they love God, and they love each other, and they live in this space in which there's a celebration of life, in which there's a refuge from the craziness that's out there. And so he's inviting us to, to live like that. And it's an inviting thought. I mean, how many of us today would say, yeah, I'm experiencing a ton of peace. I mean, that's what goes on. I get up in the morning and flip on the news and I just feel peaceful and graceful. And somehow, even to allow this sanctuary to exist in our own homes with our own children and grandchildren and extended family members and, and in our neighborhoods and in our church community, you know, the church is fighting this battle. The church is allowing the world to divide the culture of the church. The culture of this love and grace in which we live and, and, and which we're instructed that we are, we are united. We are one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who's Father of all and over all. And yet we fight over the pettiest things. And then we wonder why our minds are so messed up, why why they're so scrambled, why we feel so uncertain. And Peter's describing this, this sanctuary of life for you and I. It's, it's what he's going to get to as he concludes the letter. Let me just read it to you, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that in due time He may lift you up. Cast all your cares upon Him, because He cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. 
For Satan roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, knowing that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of temptation. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will make you strong and firm and steadfast. So the vision of the letter is that we're living this kingdom value in this sanctuary of God's peace and grace, even while the world's going crazy. We're not going crazy. We're not living like that. That's not what's happening to us. So how do we go about having a healed mind? For Peter, this idea of your mind is a bigger idea than your intellect. It's a bigger idea than your, just your thoughts. In fact, what it really means is it has something to do with everything that's going on inside of you. Uh, Jay Keeling in Black's Commentary writes this, The noun has a wider connotation, and he wants his readers to be alert and ready in their whole spiritual and mental attitude. So, so when the Scripture talks about your mind, it's really talking about your inner world. And let's be honest. Most of us define the quality of our lives the quality of our spiritual life, the quality of our relational life, the quality of, of all of life is defined by what's going on inside here, by what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. It becomes the barometer by which we navigate life. So it becomes very important that what's going on in here is fully surrendered to God because if God's not the one guiding the mechanism then this mechanism can get really out of whack. It can get really off kilter. It can lose true north. And then we can navigate away from things that really make sense. So Peter speaks then quickly about how to get our minds in order. Here it is, 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. Now, as, as I tried to work with this passage and really kind of get into the exegesis of what's going on here, it became very logical to me that, that maybe if we just took these things in reverse order, because he starts with the sober mind and he adds a few things. If we started at the bottom of that list and we worked our way back up, maybe it would be insightful and helpful. So, number one, how do we find healing for our minds? Number one, we adopt a holy mind. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Now, if what Peter is talking about is that I'm supposed to be pure like God is pure, then I'm already disqualified. But for the Jewish listeners and readers, they, there was another meaning to this idea of being holy as God is holy. And that idea really came from temple worship. It came from the, the structure of the temple and what that meant was there were ordinary tools over at the temple. There were forks and knives and, and ladles and, and instruments. And what made them holy is that not because they were special, but because they were exclusively for the use of God's work. They were exclusively for the use of the temple. And so that's the connotation that, that Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, be holy as God is holy. If you want to begin a process of healing your mind, adopt the idea 
that my life is set aside for the service of God. That's why I'm here. That's who I am. I am a citizen from another kingdom. I am living out the vision and the values and the culture of another place. And it doesn't mesh well with everything that's going on around me. It's not going to. It's not supposed to. It's supposed to instead be a beacon, a light, a hope, salt for those around me. It's supposed to be reconciliation. It's supposed to represent something that doesn't come naturally to human beings, that in fact comes naturally only by the grace of God, and that, and that I don't have to be all divided up inside. Now, I don't know how your life works, but I'll tell you how my life works. There's a million things going on. There's a million things that need my attention and want my attention, and those are things that I just need to, those are my responsibility. Taking care of a house, paying the bills, you know, trying to stay healthy, trying to, you know, make, get food, make food, wash clothes, buy clothes, all that stuff. There's work. There's, there's accomplishing something, there's relationships, there's managing family dynamics and trying to stay in touch with everybody. And then there's the craziness of the world. There's, there's the craziness of the culture in which we live. There's the politics and, and, the, and the, uh, the, the, the difficulty we have with racial reconciliation and, and all of the things that we're told about who we are and how it works and, and, and new frontiers that are sort of being approached every day and, and things that we see in the kingdom of God as being threatening and overwhelming. Somehow, you and I, we get our minds so filled up. So, we're pulled in so many directions. And if we're ever, 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 ever going to experience a healing of our minds, remember, remember where he started this conversation, <laughs> that you get your minds sobered up, that you get them tied up in the right place. Part of that is being holy as God is holy. I'm set aside for God's service. I still have to do all that stuff. I still have to navigate all of it. It doesn't go away. But this is the truth about me. This is the truth about how I see life. All that other stuff is ordered through this one thing. I've got one job. I've got one task. I am a person that is set aside for the service of God. I'm imperfect in that process. But to the best of my ability, I will not allow my mind, I will not allow my body, I will not allow my emotions to be used for something else. And I will check that process. When I feel that my mind is getting chased away to something else, pulled in a different direction, being used in a way that is not for God's purposes. And listen, do you want a list? <laughs> I mean, we can make a list. When I'm angry, when I'm furious with other people who don't agree with me, when I'm overwhelmed with fear, when I, when I feel like I can't be settled because the world's falling apart, that is not a part of the vision and the culture and the values of the kingdom of God more than any other command in Scripture. Do not be afraid. We are set aside for God's purpose. My mind, this thought, this moment... This inner piece of my world, this spiritual reality, this brain, nope, it can't be used for that. That's not what it's for. That's not what it's about. Deep breath, quiet down, stretch out, invite God. God, I'm, I'm a pioneer. I'm a, I am a 
colonist from another place, and I am feeling how hard it is to fit in, and I need your help. We adopt this mindset that is a holy mindset. Moving back up into the passage number two, we adopt a non-conforming mind. Verse 14, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So logically, the path towards that holy living is wrapped up in not conforming to the old selfish things that drive us. So let's think about that for just a minute. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I would be happy if my life was completely fulfilled by all of the human standards. I mean, I'd like to be accomplished. I'd like to have enough money to do whatever I want. Um, I'd like it, you know, if my house was all repaired and then every, and every time something happened, I just called somebody and they fixed it. Wouldn't that be awesome? I'd like for, I'd like for, you know, to have a, a life and a work that I believe is meaningful and purposeful. I'd like to matter. Uh, I don't need to be famous, but it wouldn't be bad to be appreciated by lots of people. Those are all things that I believe most of us feel. We want all those things. We want what everybody else wants. And so Paul's just saying, listen, uh, Peter's just saying, listen, <laughs> we, we adopt an attitude of nonconformity when it comes to the desires of our culture and our world. Meaning, no matter what, I'm never going to be the perfect weight. I'm never going to look exactly like I want to look. I'm, I'm never going to have enough of what I think I need to have. I'm never going to quite be in that safe place. And if I spend all of my energy, my mental energy, trying to figure out how to solve all of these problems that really have to do not with the kingdom of God or being set aside for God's service, but, but it has to do with the same desires I had before I knew anything about God. It has to do with the same desires that every other human has naturally. They just come naturally. They're just there. But we're being delivered from something. We're being released from something. Paul's just, uh, Peter's just told us that, that we're not, we don't even live in that world. We, all you can say really is that we've been given a new birth into a new kingdom. We left that world. We, we buried the old life and we're born into this new life. And so we don't conform anymore. We're not living in that reality anymore. And it's a great moment, just a checkpoint. One, is my mind, is this inner world getting used in ways that are not specifically for God's purposes? I want to be God's person, and then I'll deal with what I have to deal with. Not I'll deal with what I have to deal with and then ask God to somehow bless it. <laughs> I'm going to get centered here in what my purpose is. And then I'm going to have a checkpoint. Am I getting taken away by desires that are not really what I really am supposed to do? Is I'm supposed to love God with all my heart. And in loving God with all my heart comes a kind of excellence. An excellence that belongs to, to my work. An excellence that belongs to my creativity. An excellence that belongs to my relationships. In loving God... I'm not conforming. I am motivated by my love for God to provide the best I can be. And then I love others. These are the values that I espouse. This is the core of who I am. I wouldn't sacrifice the love of God and the love of others to satisfy those other things. And when I do, James writes these words, a double-minded person is unstable in all of their ways. Why? Well, because you can't do both. 
You either pursue that or you pursue this. And Jesus says, when you pursue the kingdom of God, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things will be added too. You do this first and then you allow God to lead you as we manage all that other stuff. That's what Peter has in mind. That we, number one, we adopt a holy mind and we adopt a non-conforming mind. And then number three, we adopt a grace-focused mind. Verse 13, again, we're working our way back up. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. Part of why we are non-conforming, set aside for God's service kind of people, is that our lives and our future are immersed in grace. We're caught up in grace. We're caught up in the ethos of grace. Grace is how God treats us. Grace is how God sees us. Grace is what He invites us to use as we view others in the world. And when all is said and done, grace is what awaits us at the end of our life's journey. We can look forward to grace. When you feel afraid, set your hope on the grace that's coming. When you feel that the world is out of control, set your hope on grace. When you feel that your children are hopeless, focus on grace. When you think your life doesn't matter, focus on grace. What would it be to be a nonconformist to the world around me, and why would I want to be such? Because, frankly, the world is not a very graceful place. But the kingdom of God is supposed to be. And the people of God are supposed to be. We live, and we breathe, and we practice, and we think, and we project a kingdom vision and value and culture of grace. Is that true? Because then we wonder why our minds are so jacked up. Why am I so stressed out? Why are these things happening the way they're happening? 2 Corinthians 10, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Is that true? Is that true of us? The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We adopt a grace-focused mind because we live a different culture. We live a different vision. We live different values. We cheer for people. We don't tear them down. Number four, adopt an alert and sober mind. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. So literally, if you wanted to get into the Greek, what the Greek literally says here is gird the loins of your mind. And the imagery is from, you know, uh, the, the old image of either an athlete or just a, a worker who has taken the big flowing robes that they work with and live in, and they've wrapped them up and tied them around their waist so that now they have freedom to offer the very best that they have. So the athlete ties, gets all girded up so they can perform to the best of their ability. And, and he uses this image, and he says, so this is what we do. 
We, we tie everything up and cinch it down so that we bring to our world, we bring to our relationships, we bring to our families, we bring to our churches, we bring to our community, we bring to our world the very best we have to offer, the best of us, because we've adopted, we've bound up our minds in such a way that we are ready to offer our best. If we're to have a healing to our minds, if we're allowed to stretch out and let the Lenten season heal us, to apply it to the places where we think and feel, then we have to recognize that we are set aside for God's purposes and not our own. That we move away from the noise and the confusion and the stress that, that marks most people's lives in the 21st century. And we instead are colonists from a different place with a different set of values and a different culture. We become nonconformist in the very best way, in the very humblest of ways. We're not serving all this myriad of things. We're just serving what we have to do all of that, but we serve the kingdom of God, and then through that, we operate in this world with that focus. And we live in grace. We practice it. We share it. We speak it. It drips out of our lives. It drips out of our attitudes. It drips out of our words. And in that process, we find that we are able to bind up our hearts and minds in such a way that we can offer our best, that we don't have to be destroyed and down and, 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 and always struggling. We can, we can move into a different space. I'm going to ask the band to come back, and we're going to pray a guided prayer in a moment. I want to go back to a thought I shared earlier. Maybe you thought it was random. Those of us that live in this country, we got here because somebody did something courageous or someone endured things that were unimaginable. But the stock that we came from were people who really stubbornly and with a great deal of perseverance and a great deal of inner strength, and for that matter, outer strength, made decisions, uprooted lives, and with great intentionality pursued something better. They, they were pioneers. They were doing something that not everybody was doing. It's a unique group of people. And somehow we've descended from that stock into people that we don't stand for much. In what distinct way do you believe your life stands out from any other person that's inhabiting this planet right now? In what way do you think my attitude is uniquely different because I serve God? I, I belong to another kingdom. I'm a citizen from another place. Would anybody question? Not, not because you're the loudest in the room. Not because you, 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 you post the most vicious posts. But because you're full of grace. Because there's something distinctly different. Because you're living the values of a different... You're from an empire whose vision and values and culture are clearly seen. Even though it's not how we do it here, we see what it is. We see what the kingdom of God looks like. Your life, my life. 
is a living example. We are the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet of the kingdom of God, alive on this planet. People shouldn't say, well, I wish I could see God visually. If I could just see Him visually, then I'd know He exists. We ought to be able to see the kingdom of God and the reality of God visibly present in our homes, in our families, in our lives, in our attitude, but right in here. In this inner place where we live, in our spirit and in our thoughts. Is that true of you? And would people say that's true of you? Because sometimes we think it's true of us, but we're the only one who does. Let's pray. God, as we celebrate this Lenten season, we're lengthening, stretching out. It's a season of repentance and change. It's a season in which we intentionally, for days and days, weeks and weeks, ask you to search us and to show us things you desire to change in us. We confess to you that while we long for the fruit of the kingdom, we don't always want to do the work of the kingdom. And so we're asking you to remind us that we are to be holy as you are holy. Our lives, our existence are to serve you. We seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And we trust that you'll take care of the rest. Or maybe the rest isn't all that important. Would you hear us as we confess that we often make other things the priority? And when we do that, we reap a harvest of unrest and minds that are overwhelmed, sad, depressed, fearful. Would you remind us that We're to be nonconformists. Would you show us what that means? Would you show us ways in which we still live by the same old, same old? We still want all the same things and believe those are the places where we'll find real peace and real happiness. We just want to confess that to you. The truth is, for most of us, we really believe that if the temporary things were better, our lives would be much better. Show us how to navigate. Remind us of the priorities of the kingdom and what it would look like to be loving nonconformist in this world. Would you remind us that this is a kingdom of grace? That we're to be full of grace. It's to encompass our lives. It's, it's how you treat us. It's how you regard us. It's how you see us. And it's what we look forward to. At the end of this journey, we will 
exit this world and culture and we will step fully into your unending grace. And because of that, would you allow us to regard others with grace? People who don't think like us or share our politics, who are not the same race as we are, who don't come from the same background. This kingdom is about loving each other completely, wholly. Teach us to practice grace. Finally, would you bind up our hearts and minds so that every day we might present our very best, the best to our families, our communities, to you, to the kingdom of God, to the world in which we live. Remind us that the world must never change the empire. The empire must change the world. And teach us to do that one day at a time. We pray it in Jesus' name and ask you to hear our response. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.